2: And of course, it's it's also possible that they affirm Judge Jones's decision and, and that the case ends up back in state court. The other lingering question with removal, of course, Ben, is also whether Trump will uh, file a notice of removal. He has not, but he the, the clock is ticking. Steve Sadow, who is his attorney in Fulton County, has been at all of the removal hearings that I've been to for Meadows, for Jeffrey Clark, and, and also for the fake electors. And they have until 30 days after arraignment to file that notice of removal. I believe that the date that Trump filed his arraignment waiver and entered his not guilty plea was August 31st. So it's within the next few days here that we should see whether Trump will file that notice of removal.
0: I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 30th, 2023. It's another episode of Lawfare's live Thursday show, Trump Trials and Tribulations, a tour around four courts. This one with Scott Anderson, Anna Bauer, Roger Parloff, and hosted by me. We talked about what's going on in Fulton County. We talked about that judgment against Donald Trump and the Trump Organization in New York. In the civil case from Letitia James, we talked about Tanya Chutkin's refusal to recuse herself. And we talked about SIPA, 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 classified materials in Mar-a-Lago. It's the Lawfare Podcast, Trump Trials and Tribulations, a trip through four courts. We have a packed week of stuff. And it's all happened in like the last couple days, because when we talked the other day about this Episode, we were like, man, there's not that much going on. But no sooner did we say it than the New York State Supreme Court, which is a trial court in New York, decided to put the Trump organization out of business. So, Scott, this is a civil judgment. I guess it's more part of a tribulation than a trial since it was a pre-trial summary judgment motion, how big a deal is it? And uh, what is the effect going to be? Is Trump Tower going to be renamed Letitia James Tower as the meme going around uh, the various online services? Has it?
3: Yeah, it's a really interesting case. Uh, you know, I'm going to caveat all this by saying a New York State civil case is a little bit out of my usual lane uh, as our international lawyer person. Uh, so uh, I'm pinch hitting a little bit and I've read in on this a little bit, but there may be limits to my knowledge. Uh, but it's a really interesting case and it's a phenomenal read. This is an opinion that came from Judge. I want to say Erdogan, but that's actually mispronouncing. Let me make sure I have the right right spelling here. It's very close to Erdogan. Yeah, it's Uh, Ndogan, I think. Ndogan, thank you. Uh, This is what happens when you ask the international lawyer to come in and talk about state court proceedings. Uh, Judge Ndogan issued a decision uh, two days ago, uh, essentially providing summary judgment on some of the counts that uh, Attorney General Leticia James had brought in this civil suit. The civil suit generally alleges that former President Trump and an array of businesses and business associates of his were engaged in a systemic process of fraud where they systematically misrepresented the value of a whole range of estates, uh, among other sort of casual claims, but really, really numerous, numerous property-related claims about valuations, and did so to underrepresent or overrepresent the value of that estate for various purposes. So for tax purposes, for mostly using them as collateral or seeking insurance on them, uh, overstating their value in various ways has been ongoing for several months now. Um, we've seen a series of uh, litigation over uh, different types of subpoenas the Attorney General's Office had issued regarding, regarding the suit. We actually saw a decision go through uh, Judge and, uh and through the appellate court in New York come down this past summer. We actually just saw in the last 30 minutes another decision come from that court, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, this opinion that came out a few days ago from the trial court says essentially, look, I'm finding for summary judgment, I mean, we're not even going to bother going to trial on a huge swath of the fraud claims. These are claims about the systemic pattern. Um, And it says as a remedy, essentially, in addition to potential fines and other things that might come out later, I'm revoking a series of business licenses for a lot of the corporate defendants and for businesses owned by a lot of the named um, real person defendants.
0: So before you go on here, I just want to pause over the issuance of summary judgment in favor of the plaintiffs. You don't see that very often. No. Usually summary judgment because in a summary judgment movement motion, you have to construe the facts as favorable to the non-moving party as possible. And you have to say that you have to be able to say as a judge that there is no way to construe the facts and evidence in which Letitia James does not win. We saw that happen in the in the Dominion Fox News case, uh, which was even more extraordinary because it was a, a defamation case where the liability standard is so radically constrained. But this is now another case and one involving Trump in which, you know, they basically said there's no way a jury cannot find for her. And I I I'm just curious for your thoughts on that whether you would think it's as extraordinary as I do.
3: It, it is pretty extraordinary. You know, we I don't know enough about New York, you know, judgments under this, uh under this standard, what their general court, what their approach of review is. I'm familiar with the federal standard In a federal court, this would be pretty remarkable. Not unheard of, but pretty remarkable. I mean, again, it would show that there's just no there's no dispute of facts here that's sufficient that a jury could reasonably find to the contrary and the judge is not shy about explaining why. I mean, he basically points out in a variety of these estates cases where the Trump administration has been shown, Trump Trump and the Trump organization and various other defendants have been shown to have a series of estimates of the value of certain properties, and then to have filed estimates that departed from them wildly in directions in favor of those defendants. Um, sometimes to the tune of like, six or seven hundred percent of the value. Um, the judge says easily, you know, you could have j- j- differences of opinion errors that might lead to a 10 percent or 20 percent or maybe a 50 percent or maybe even in some exceptional cases, a 100 percent departure um, from the estimate given. But several hundred percent in a direction that favors you systematically over a whole array of properties over multiple years of conduct, uh, although the claims themselves only go back to 2014 for statute of limitations reasons, is pretty remarkable. And that appears to be what. The judge is hanging his hat on. Um, We'll see what happens on appeal, but it's worth noting we just saw the appellate court, intermediate appellate court rule in this matter in the last 30 minutes or an hour or so. Um, There had been an outstanding motion where Trump and his attorneys had said that Judge. And Erdogan had improperly applied an earlier intermediate appellate court ruling from the summer um, that, in their view, should have withheld certain testimony. And by virtue of withholding that testimony, essentially wiped out a lot of these claims. The appellate court, in a kind of two-page ruling, which I haven't found a copy yet because it just happened, but as described, it's a two-page, very succinct, concise ruling, says essentially, uh the trial court had it right. Um, So at least they're not biting onto some of these more assertive or aggressive claims that uh, Trump and his lawyers seem to be making. Now, this is still going to go to a hearing on October 2nd, I believe it's scheduled. There are still other claims that have to be resolved. Until then, it's also a little unclear what the remedy the court has issued is. Uh, there essentially was already a retired judge who is serving as kind of an overseer of certain corporate business practices in this case, and had filed a report indicating that there are still some problematic things that were happening even under her independent supervision. Um, she is now still in charge of these sorts of actions. And again, the, he's issued uh, essentially an injunction saying these people aren't allowed to do business here. Um, I'm with I'm with repealing certain certificates uh, that allow them to do business here, and these people aren't supposed to be in, involved in a lot of these business practices. Trump's lawyers actually came back the next day, asked for clarification on this, saying, like, "Are you saying we need to sell all these properties, or that we just can't be involved in managing them?" Um, the judge said he wasn't really, really ready to issue a ruling on that at this point. Um, so it sounds like it's more that they are supposed to be operating under. I guess, the authority of whoever's left at these organizations or under the, the supervision of this independent observer. Um, but regardless, it's a, a pretty significant barrier to Trump and a lot of his affiliates doing business in New York, at least temporarily until the broader resolution of these matters. And if the summary judgment stands, obviously there could be permanent uh, damages owed. Uh, uh, Attorney General James had asked for $250 million in damages, um, but there could be much more uh, in the offing still.
0: And what, when, when you say there's still some matters that are going to trial, what delineates the stuff that the judge did rule on from the stuff that is going to trial?
3: It's a good question. I think it is a certain defendants uh, and then certain types of claims. So, the claims that they're specifically addressing are fraud claims under a certain provision of the um, executive law, which is kind of like a corporate governance law of the state of New York. I take it, again, not a New York state law expert. So, apologies. Maybe there's one on here who can weigh in and clarify. Um, there are other claims of the initial complaint, which I believe is still the current complaint, about falsifying financial statements different sorts of uh, other types of fraud separately related from just these property claims. So it seems to be just a subset of the fraud claims. Um, My suspicion is that a lot of these other arguments have much more to do with questions of intent, mens rea, individual things that may vary from defendant to defendant, whereas this particular fraud claim, the way the judge described and structured it, uh, at least the way he understood it, is that it's 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 closer to strict liability. Like You're filing false statements. You seem to have evidence of knowledge that's sufficient to show you knew they were false, and that's sufficient to trip the line on this particular set of claims.
0: All right. So we are going to do a heck of a bounce around here because different people on this uh, uh, Zoom have read different filings in different courts. It's not an easy delineation where, like, Anna has Fulton County and Roger has D.C. So we're going to bounce around a bit. Let's start with Judge Chutkin. Roger, you predicted last week that Judge Chutkin would not recuse herself and that uh, the—argued that the motion for recusal was very weak, Judge Chutkin has now issued 20 pages of ruling on the subject of which I have read zero. Were you right?
4: I was right. Uh, and
0: the, it's a very- The three most fun <laughs> words to say in all of journalism.
4: Yeah. Uh, and pretty rare ones too. But, um, and it's a good ruling and I think it puts this to bed. It's a, it like you said, 20 pages. One of the nice things, things about this ruling is it's very understated. It's very dispassionate. She controlled herself. She didn't get angry. Uh, There's no sarcasm. There's no lashing out that might look like bias. If you remember, the issue was that she had said a couple things in two sentencings of January 6th defendants that uh, Trump took issue with. And the main one involved a case where she said the words, she was describing what the the defendant had done. And she said, it's a blind loyalty to one person who, by the way, remains free to this day. So the Trump's lawyer said, well, the clear implication of that is that she wants him imprisoned. And so she's biased. And, you know, if you were looking at this out of the blue uh you could almost say well i don't know maybe maybe so because the standard is under 18 usc 455a any justice judge or magistrate judge of the united states shall disqualify himself in any proceeding in which his impartiality might reasonably be questioned now the the thing is as as she points out very calmly um, there's a lot of glosses on that, including most importantly, Supreme Court a Supreme Court ruling in 1994. That's very clear that ordinarily intra what are called they make a distinction between intrajudicial statements and extrajudicial statements. Statements made in court about a subject before the judge are almost never, and those are Justice Scalia's words. Almost never going to warrant uh, recusal and so that's where it begins there's and 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 then what what she says is, is she goes through very meticulously what was happening here the two defendants were being sentenced they they had pled guilty uh, what they had done was stipulated to the prosecution had presented videos during the sentencing and and the, the defense lawyers had made arguments, and their arguments had been, t- two, first of all, I was there at Trump's behest. You should be lenient for that reason. And also, there are people more culpable than me, the organizers and everybody else, that have not been charged. And you should take that into account. Why should I be sent to jail when all of these more culpable people. And so she was addressing those arguments. And in that context, she was saying, yes, you, you know, you're right about this, but still there was a mob and, and, and and you were part of it. And, uh, and then she explains that the sentencing statutes and the case law require her to do this. She has to, it's part of her job is to go through the arguments that are made by the defendant and to say well the degree to which you're giving them credit the degree to which you're you're discounting them and why and so she said a reasonable person aware of the statutory requirement that the court address the defendant's arguments and state its reasons for its sentence would understand that in making the statements contested here the court was not issuing vague declarations about third parties' potential guilt in a hypothetical future case. Instead, it was fulfilling its duty to expressly evaluate the defendant's arguments that the sentences should be reduced because other individuals whom they believed were associated with the events of January 6th had not been prosecuted. So, uh, I think that dispenses with it. If it doesn't, there's another precedent which he cites, which is the Watergate case um, itself. In that case, Judge Sirica got the original seven defendants. And then later on, uh, and, and he actually he got a number of Watergate related. uh he, he handled another number of Watergate related matters until down the road, he also got the case of the top defendants, John Mitchell, the former attorney general, H.R. Haldeman and John Ehrlichman. And so what he had said in those earlier, he had expressed a belief that criminal liability extended beyond the seven persons they're charged. And in fact, he had gone much further than uh, Judge uh, uh, Chutkin ever did. He actually suggested people, names, whom prosecutors might consider calling before the grand jury. So he went much further and and the N-Bank DC Circuit said, no, 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 that's, that's nothing. So that is binding on her. It's binding even on the DC Circuit if it's appealed. So I think this is um, a dead issue at this point. And we have
0: a question from Josh that is directly related to this, which is whether this opinion can be appealed and what the procedure for it is. I assume, Roger, that the answer to that question is that it would have to be appealed either on direct appeal after a conviction, which is the cleanest way, or if they wanted to appeal it now by mandamus but the D.C. Circuit would be bound by the en banc D.C. Circuit opinion in either case.
4: Am I right? I think you're right. All of that sounds right to me. And they don't even get need to get to the D.C. Circuit case because they the Supreme Court case Lighty versus United States, 1994. I think Sarah, our colleague Seraphin talked about it two weeks ago. That is. Really dispenses of this case. And, you know, if they want to go that route, it it will not delay things very long. There will not be a stay, granted.
0: All right. Anna, let's talk about the 11th Circuit because, you know, while we're bouncing around, we have the ongoing appeal of removal matters before the 11th Circuit. What's up with that?
2: Yeah, so we're still in the briefing stage. If, if folks remember uh, Judge Steve Jones of the district court in the Northern District of Georgia, that's the federal court uh, that Mark Meadows is trying to remove his case to from Fulton County State Court. Judge Jones decided that Meadows could Not remove his case. He denied that request. And Meadows, uh, right away appealed to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, which is largely based in Atlanta and, and, you know, covers Georgia and Florida. And that is the court that will decide now, you know, whether Judge Jones got it right in terms of sending Meadows' case back to state court. Uh, so the 11th Circuit has expedited briefing on that. That is set to wrap up today, actually and we should be hearing uh, pretty soon if they will set oral argument for that. Um, But today is the day that Meadows will reply. And over the past two weeks, we've seen, you know, Mark Meadows submitted his appellant brief in which he argued that Judge Jones got it wrong and uh, basically, you know, made very similar arguments to what he'd made before about, uh, him, you know, qualifying for removal because he was a federal officer at the time of the conduct. Um, he claimed that, you know, he'd met his burden, um, was acting in the scope of his office, um, and had raised federal defenses. Uh, Fonnie Willis, of course, uh, has argued that judge Jones got it right. Um, and the main focus here that, that folks need to keep in mind is that it was that second prompt the scope of office uh, prong that that Judge Jones said that Meadows had not met his burden. He, he said that uh, the charged conduct was, you know, felt the heart of the charged conduct uh, fell outside the scope of his office. But Fonnie Willis made sure to cover her bases in um, in this briefing that she submitted to the Eleventh Circuit because I think that she realizes that even though Judge Jones did not reach this third prong, which is the uh, whether or not Meadows raised uh, federal, uh, a plausible federal def- Defense. Um, I think that she realizes that you know, even if the Eleventh Circuit decides that Meadows had acted in the scope of his office, she really needs to make sure to raise that that third issue about the federal defenses. Um, it's unclear to me if the Eleventh Circuit will reach that question. It could be the case that you know they decide to reverse Jones on the scope of office, but then send it back to him to decide the question of whether or not uh, Meadows raised uh, a plausible federal defense, which then could send us back to the 11th Circuit. So we could have some uh, kind of, you know, back and forth here, possibly, um, depending on what the 11th Circuit decides to do with this opinion. And of course, it's it's also possible that they affirm Judge Jones's decision and, and that the case ends up back in state court. The other lingering question with removal, of course, Ben, is also whether Trump will uh, file a notice of removal. He has not, but he the the clock is ticking. Steve Sadow, who is his attorney in Fulton County, has been at all of the removal hearings that I've been to for Meadows, for Jeffrey Clark, and, and also for the fake electors. And they have until 30 days after arraignment to file that notice of removal. I believe that the date that Trump filed his arraignment waiver and entered his not guilty plea was August 31st. So it's within the next few days here that we should see whether Trump will file that notice of removal.
0: And meanwhile, we have these other removal motions pending for cases that everyone seems to think are less compelling than Meadows. Who are we awaiting removal rulings from.
2: Right. So we're waiting to hear what Judge Jones will decide on Jeffrey Clark's efforts to remove that that hearing took place last week. And as we discussed last week, I did not think it it went very well for Jeffrey Clark. I'm actually a little bit surprised that Judge Jones has not yet issued an opinion on that. He acted very quickly in getting an, an opinion out uh, on Meadows case. And um, but here we have seen that he has not yet issued an order on on and Jeffrey Clark. And then the second group of defendants who are still awaiting a decision from Judge Jones on removal are the fake electors. That's Sean Still, uh, David Schaefer and Kathy Latham, who in a consolidated hearing all made very similar arguments, uh, arguing that because they were electors, they were, you know, acting as federal officers. and and for the reasons I stated last week, you know, I really uh, am doubtful that 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 hearing went very well for them. and i and I don't think Judge Jones is going to allow them to remove that case. But again, we're we're waiting to see uh, what he will decide. And when that order will come down, it's possible that he could be waiting. To see if he could, you know, wait for the 11th circuit to decide the Meadows issue so that he has a little bit more direction from the Court of Appeals about, uh, you know, the law in this area because there is so little law in this area. Um, but it could also just be that, uh, he doesn't have those orders ready. Maybe he wants to hand them all down at the same time. Um, we will see. So I'm keeping my eye on the docket for that.
0: All right. And uh speaking of now not Judge Jones, but Judge McAfee, who, for those who can't keep track of the game of musical judges, Judge Jones is the federal judge who's um deciding whether to remove cases from Judge McAfee's courtroom. Judge McAfee is the twelve and a half year old judge on the uh uh Fulton County court who is actually hearing the case, and we're we're all very excited about his bar mitzvah, which is coming up. Anna, he seems concerned to protect the identities of jurors, which would make him the first ever Georgia public official concerned to protect any piece of information in the Georgia court system. Uh, What is going on here?
2: Yeah. So Judge McAfee issued an order this week saying that uh, it, the parties and media and anyone who you know comes into the court will be prohibited from uh, f- photographing or uh, describing any kind of identifying characteristics or features of the jurors who are ultimately selected in this case, or or who are potentially going to be selected in this case. That. Order follows a motion from Fonnie Willis's office. They, you know, mentioned that. Because Georgia laws uh, around the grand jurors meant that those identities were revealed, and then subsequently uh, there was a website that doxxed their you know names and addresses, and uh, there was a lot of um, really scary threats that were directed their way. Uh, she kind of referenced that as as a reason why this would be necessary in this case. Of course, you know, there's also uh, the fact that that Fonnie Willis' own team and, and her family have also uh, apparently uh, experienced threats and, and harassment as a result of this case. So this is kind of a protective motion that, that Fonnie Willis's team filed to ask the, the court to protect the identities of these jurors, and Judge McAfee granted it. I'm not entirely sure what... what the exact parameters of it are. Like it says, you know, you can't make any representations or, you know, reveal any identifying characteristics. I I am not sure what that entirely means. Does it mean you can't um, describe physical characteristics or occupations of jurors? I would assume so, but um, it's it's a little bit unclear to me in, in terms of reporting on the case, you know. Or
0: race or gender, right? It's, yeah. it's really typical in a lot of jurisdictions for reporters to say you know the jury which contains six women and and eight men five black people seven white people right like that's a completely normal uh routine thing you know, it's it's kind of a little it's a little bit odd. I, I welcome the new Georgia solicitude for, for juror safety, but you know, they gave out the names and addresses of the grand jurors. Um yeah. and it, it's like a little bit odd to say now you can't even describe the um oh, but here are their names and addresses.
2: Yeah, and that was I. So and and again, to be clear, that was required by state law. It, it, it wasn't their addresses. It was their addresses were later revealed by uh, a website. But it was their names certainly were on the indictment, and and that was because it was a requirement under state law. Which I hope that the Georgia General Assembly. Yeah, they will need to re- think about that. Yeah, but uh, I, I another thing that I will just mention while we're on the subject of you know uh, protecting identities and that kind of thing, uh, there. Also, uh, just yesterday, Fonnie Willis's office filed a motion for a protective order over discovery in the case. And the reason that they gave, again, mentioned uh, doxing of identities, and and they mentioned the need to protect witnesses uh, or, uh, you know, sensitive uh, information that could be in the discovery. And so they're asking for a protective order that would basically bar parties in the case from, uh, you know, disseminating discovery uh, to members of the media or or elsewhere. So uh, beyond, you know, preparing for the case. Um, um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. There is a scheduling conference tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. And I think that that will be very interesting because there's a number of other pending motions and items that have been coming on the docket that, that maybe you want to talk about, Ben. But, um, uh, you know, just flagging that in addition to that order on jurors identity, we now have this uh, protective order motion that's in play as well.
0: Right. Uh so let's, actually let's uh go to that uh what is the contours of the protective order as requested.
2: Right. So I mean my understanding is is as I've described and I I will need to go back and and look at the motion to see if there's anything beyond this but my understanding is that it generally would bar, you know, the parties meaning the prosecution or the defense from disseminating basically any of the discovery that's not, especially that that's not already public to members of the media beyond, you know, it, it basically restricts them to just dealing with the discovery um, for preparation of the case. Um, but, you know, I, I would need to go back and look at that motion to make sure that I'm, I, I'm not missing something on uh, whether it's more restrictive than that.
0: All right. So uh, looking at Anna's background makes me want to take a trip to South Florida to the beach. So let's talk about Mar-a-Lago. Roger, uh, the last we talked about Mar-a-Lago, you reported that Judge uh, Eileen Cannon had requested uh, two dissertations on the subject of the Classified Information Procedures Act. Uh, the University of uh, Miami will be now awarding doctorates to two sets of lawyers who have, in fact, filed these uh, SIPA treatises in front of um, Judge Cannon. What uh, is the status of the SEPA briefing, which uh, the New York Times informs me shortly before we went live, has given rise to the first major scheduling conflict of the Mar-a-Lago case. So bring us up to date. Is it SEPA all the way down?
4: Well, there's actually a couple different SEPA things going, going on. But as for the treatises, they were filed. There was about 30 pages, 21 from the government and nine from Walt Nauta, his attorney, uh, uh, Stan Woodward. It all seems to revolve around the question of uh, whether Nauta and also de Oliveira, the other, the third uh, defendant, uh, will be given access to these incredibly sensitive, well, uh, classified documents that they aren't charged with uh, possessing or retaining. And so the government is going to give these 32 documents to Trump because he's seen them already. Those are the 32 that are charged, the willful retention charges. They are going to give only one to Nauta because that's the one he saw before when a box toppled out. and when that, he
0: spilled it on the floor yeah. of
4: the bathroom. Yeah, and uh, uh, that one is uh, count eight. But uh, they don't see the point in giving these documents to either of them besides that one because they have no security clearances. Uh, De Oliveira has probably never had one. They aren't charged with uh, these documents. They're charged with moving boxes, uh, obstruction. In any event, uh, Judge uh, Cannon appears to consider this a weighty and difficult question, and and apparently uh, it has to do with uh, the term defendant, which many courts have understood. They're going to, by I, I didn't mention uh, the government is going to give these documents to Woodward, to Nauta's attorney. They're going to give it to John Irving, who is de Oliveira's attorney, because those guys do have clearances. Uh, they're just not going to give it to the defendants. And and so the question is, there's a word in SEPA and also in other discovery about giving things to the defendant, and many courts have have have. Uh, interpreted that to mean, okay, if you give it to the defense lawyer, that's sufficient. You don't always insert, you know, have to give it to the defendant himself. But those precedents, uh, a lot of the SEPA precedents, they don't come from the 11th Circuit. They come from the Eastern District of Virginia, where a lot of these cases are brought because that's where the, a lot of the intelligence community is, the CIA is there, also Brooklyn, also New York. But uh, none in the 11th Circuit, and so uh, this this is an ongoing problem. Maybe more concerning still is that Trump uh, on uh, September 22nd asked for a three-month delay in the next SEPA deadline, which is called Section 4, relates to Section 4. That deadline was coming up October 10th, and they want that delayed three months to January 5th. What happens in the Section 4 deadline, um, the government, even though the government is giving all of the charged documents to Trump, there are some additional classified discovery. There is additional classified discovery that they don't want to give to him. And so they are using under Section 4, they can, uh, you can go, it, it says you, have an ex-party proceeding, the government has an ex-party proceeding before the judge, defense is not present, none of them. And you explain, here's why it's so sensitive. We want to redact such and such, or we want to substitute such and such, or 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 how you want to handle it. And ordinarily, the other side, at the same time, the defense will sort of also ex-party go to the judge and say, look, here are our key defenses as we anticipate it. So in judging what we need to, you know, we can't say because we haven't seen the documents, but you judge, consider these are our defenses, what's fair in terms of letting us fully defend ourselves. And they want to push that off three months. And if they do that, according to the government, which just responded today, uh, Clearly, it would be impossible to keep the the current trial uh, schedule, which calls for a, a trial in May uh, May twentieth of twenty twenty four, and they also feel that um, nothing has materially changed since she set that trial. There have been a few glitches, and the glitches are interesting. <laughs> as some of them have already been taken care of, but. Apparently, and what they explain here is that nine of the documents are so sensitive. These are the ones that they are turning, that these are the charged documents. Nine of the 32 are so sensitive that the agencies that originated them do not want them sent to the SCIF in Florida. They're not confident about that SCIF. They want them to be made available to the defense in a SCIF a sensitive compartmented information facility in uh, Washington.
3: Well, I was going to mention one thing that's interesting about those docs. Actually, is it looks like four of four or five. I think four of them actually may have been already in the Florida skiff, and were actually asked to remove them by the intelligence agency because they determined they were too high classified to be in that facility kind of after the fact, which is an interesting dynamic with the Justice Department. Um, but something that it can be a problem sometimes for prosecutions that involve highly classified information. You see in other cases like spy cases, um, where you have to have the sustained cooperation from the intelligence agency for this information. They can kind of change their position in ways that the Justice Department just has to deal with. Um, and this appears to perhaps have been a case like that or a case of miscommunication where the Justice Department thought it was okay to have these things in Florida and now they're being told by the owner of those documents, I believe as it's described in the footnote, no, uh, we actually can't hold these in these facilities. In other cases, you have seen prosecutions get really complicated by that because you will have an intelligence agency suddenly become very uncomfortable with the way information is being framed or used, access to it, and then decide, no, we really can't share this. And you know, the FBI can ele- elevate that in the interagency, or pardon me, the Justice Department can elevate that in the interagency, but there's not always a clear way to resolve it. And usually the IC. It tends to win in cases like that. Um, so it's a little bit, you know, it's a, maybe a little bit of a small warning flag that you had this miscommunication in the first place. I'm sure it's something the special counsel's office is very cognizant of, very wary of. Um, but, you know, if some elements of the IC are getting cold feet about some of these docs, that could pose a problem for some of these charges down the road, especially if Judge Cannon says, no, Trump has a right to review these things without having traveled to Washington, D.C. Um, for a case in Florida. And that that could pose its own complications.
0: Especially... Because of the nature of the further up you go in the interagency, the more people tend to be recused. So, you know, if you elevate this above the level of the special counsel, you have the attorney general who has appointed the special counsel because he doesn't think it's appropriate for him to be involved. And above the attorney general, you have the president who says, I'm not going anywhere near this because it involves. The prosecution of my political opponent. And so it's actually a very difficult issue to the extent that the agency head in question, and we don't know whether this is military or whether it's intelligence community. If it's classified at that level, it's probably intelligence community. But we don't know which agency we're talking about. You know, signals intelligence would come from NSA, Human intelligence comes from CIA. Um as a general matter, uh those are the two most likely, but you know if you're if the agency head and the special counsel can't work things out on that, that gets really sticky uh in a case like this. It's not like um you know a spy case where you can kind of resolve it at the agency head level. yes, Roger,
4: yeah, there's one other thing uh, and it, it sort of implied already. Um, you know, before we got here, there was some speculation. How how are they gonna present these documents at a public trial? And of course, one way is you could declassify them. That's not gonna happen.
0: Right. If if you can't even yeah. send it to, to a skiff <laughs> in know. Florida, you're really not declassifying it. So at least for those nine charges.
4: And and what that means is that they are probably planning to rely on the so-called silent witness rule, which is, you know, well-established in the Fourth Circuit, but there is no official blessing of it in the Eleventh Circuit. And this judge is even uncomfortable with, you know, the the protective order. It took her two months, and, and then she entered the protective order and asked for 30 pages more briefing. And so what she's going to say when we get to, and, and I should explain the, the, just in a, a few words, the silent witness rule is a way of resolving this problem. How do you have a public trial with these ultra-sensitive documents? And the the weird resolution is you do show them to the jury, but you sort of speak about them in a coded way in public, in the trial. So the people watching, and particularly the media, are not supposed to be able to figure out exactly which document this is. And the the jurors will have a key, and they will get the whole thing. But whether this judge will permit that procedure, even though the Fourth Circuit has, is a real big question. All right. All
0: of which brings us to the other matter before Judge Cannon, Scott R. Anderson, which is the question of Garcia hearings So first of all, what is a Garcia hearing? And secondly, uh, why is Judge Cannon hung up on the question of Garcia hearings and how many of them are we going to get and when are they going to happen?
3: Yeah, so we we have now two Garcia hearings scheduled for October 12th. Uh, It may actually be one kind of consolidated hearing because it sounds like there's some overlap, but they're both for both defendants other than former President Trump. They're scheduled for October 12th. This is a hearing we've talked about before where in the Fifth Circuit, where there's an alleged conflict of interest in regards to legal representation, a Garcia hearing is one remedy where essentially the court brings the defendant in with his attorney, explains the conflict of interest, makes a determination that the defendant, if they choose to do it once after the hearing, after they get the information, is knowingly and voluntarily waiving uh, any concerns or potential conflicts regarding their attorney. And it's supposed to be a remedy that prevents the possibility that the a conviction could later be overturned because of ineffective assistance of counsel, because of conflict of interest claims. Essentially, it's it's it confirming with an airtight case that those defendants have in fact waived their rights to uh, have a counsel without a conflict of interest, right? In this case, the government motion for these Garcia hearings, um, because the attorneys for both of Oliveira and Walt Nauda, the two defendants other than former President Trump in the matter uh, at Mar-a-Lago, both are being represented by attorneys, Nauda by Stan Woodward, Oliveira by Mr. Irving, uh, I believe, or maybe Mr. Merle and Mr. Irving. So maybe it's a pair of attorneys who are working together, if I recall. They are uh, each representing It sounds like, although there may be some overlaps or maybe less than six, but up to six witnesses that are potentially going to be called by the prosecution in this case. Um, They include the IT manager um, who features in the superseding indictment, also represented by Stan Woodward. If I recall correctly, they entail a person described as being a former assistant for former President Trump, both during their time in the White House and Mar-a-Lago. I think this is likely the woman who's covered in media stories in the last week or so, indicating that she was given to-do lists on the backs of classified documents and was involved in handing some of those documents back to FBI investigators from Mar-a-Lago. She at least meets, meets that description. And a couple of other people referenced in the different superzing indictments, all anonymous at this point. We don't know exactly who they are, um, although we can make some informed guesses. But it's a problem because- they're being represented, their attorneys are representing them or also representing witnesses that may be adverse to their interests in this case, because they're testifying about things that seem, at least from the complaint, likely to be uh, incriminating or the indictments likely to be incriminating of their defend, of, of their clients. So the government's getting their ask for these hearings. That's probably good for the government. The government did not get what, was asked, uh, what they had asked for, which is that they wanted the actual witnesses who also have a conflict of interest in the representation to come forward and participate in the hearing. Um, Judge Cannon denied that, but without prejudice meaning the government's free to make it later. Um, if I were to be generous or, or to make a, a, a positive inference for what Judge Cannon might be thinking, you could imagine a structure where that makes sense, where they say, okay, let's see if Nauda and, uh, and Oliveira actually are willing to waive their conflict of interest. Um, if they're not and they seek new counsel, then there isn't any conflict of interest with those witnesses anymore, and we don't need to undermine the attorney's relationship with them by calling them into this hearing if they decide to stick with their current counsel, then maybe there's a case for another Garcia hearing or some other proceeding involving those witnesses as well. Um, So we'll have to see. The fact that she did it without prejudice uh, suggests she's not Cutting off the idea she's just saying not at this stage. We'll have to wait until October 12th to see what happens on those hearings. She also reserved the right to hold parts of them ex parte in camera, uh, meaning that we won't hear those parts of it to deal with privilege issues. But we'll get a sense, at least, I think some sense uh, as to what both what these witnesses might be dealing with um, and then how the court and the defendants are going to deal with these potential conflict issues, which are rife throughout all these proceedings, because it's a fairly small universe of Trump-related lawyers. This is just the first time we've really seen defendants forced to confront them uh, and their attorneys forced to confront them.
0: All right. Finally, before we go to audience questions, Scott, uh, there is, in fact, a motion before Judge Chutkin not to bind but to gag Donald Trump, and it's gotten a lot of attention. What is the status of it, and what are we expecting?
3: So, you know, I'm going to do this really briefly because we're we're short on time. We're going to talk about it, no doubt, more at length when we get a decision in the next week or two. Uh, We received the reply brief from former President Trump and his counsel uh, in response to the special counsel's request for this gag order, um, essentially alleging that it violated their First Amendment rights, um, that they have a right to comment on the trial, um, really framing it in terms of hostile action by the court against former President Trump, um, his his role as a candidate in the presidential election. Also complicating there's a related request by a special counsel about holding off on any sort of polling in D.C. Uh, I'm assuming it's related to the trial, not related to the election. Uh, although I don't think former President Trump's election odds in D.C. are particularly good, I don't think any polling to tell you that. The uh, that that they they also are objecting to kind of any sort of restraint on their efforts to polling. Maybe they're considering this in regards to you know building a case that D.C. is not a is a biased jury pool. They're not able to get a fair juror uh, pool, or maybe they could arguably be, u- be using that to try and corrupt the jury pool um, through some kind of targeted leading polling. All of that's a. Uh, be a difficult enterprise because these sorts of polling don't really ask that many people that many questions. Um, you just get a representative sampling size. Long story short, we got the reply brief. It's caused a lot of an uproar, a lot of public statements from former President Trump and his surrogates. There, uh, we're going to get a final sort of reply brief, uh, or surreply reply from special counsel, I think, on Saturday. Uh, and then we'll see what Judge K- Chuck rules on this. I imagine she'll move relatively quickly, um, because it is motivated in part by, You know, a desire to defend witnesses from intimidation, as well as jurors and other folks. I I suspect we'll see it pretty quickly, maybe as soon as next week. um, And we'll be able to talk about it more length next Thursday.
0: All right. Jacob, you have the first question today, and it is on a subject near and dear to Anna and my uh, little hearts. Uh, So the floor is yours.
4: Yeah, so I'll just preface it. If people haven't listened to the interview that went up today that Anna and Ben had with, the defense team for Ken Chesbro. They showed it was really interesting. One of the points that the team seemed to make was that they requested a um, speedy trial because they wanted Chesbro to be to defend himself on his own. But of course, aren't they stuck with Sidney Powell anyway, who seems to be involved in a lot more overt criminal acts, like coffee counting, et cetera? So
0: I'll I'll take a stab at that, and Anna, feel free to add whatever you want. Um, so yes, they are stuck with Sidney Powell. They fought that pretty vociferously. They tried to sever from her as well. Uh, Judge McAfee didn't let them do that. The law in Georgia actually was is pretty unfavorable to severance if you don't have a particularly good reason. Uh, and so they succeeded in the larger severance from the larger group, not because they of a motion to sever, but because they invoked their, for, their speedy trial rights and the others didn't. And so their timing was simply different. So they were severed for that reason. They are stuck with Sidney Powell. They're clearly not pleased about that. But uh, there are... I suspect, and I'm if they were here, I'm sure they would say they're not pleased about that, and that's why they filed the motion. But I suspect they're not too upset about it. Because while Sidney Powell's is a I think the technical term is a is a nutcase, uh she's involved in activity that is not really related to Ken Chesbrough's activity. They've never met, they had nothing to do with each other, whatever he did, whatever she did is going to be hard to evaluate as related to one another. So it's almost like two separate trials that have very little to do with one another going on at the same time. Whereas if you put him in a room with John Eastman, Rudy Giuliani, Donald Trump, the argument that they're engaged in some kind of common enterprise is much stronger. So look, I mean... As I said in that conversation, I think the entire Ken Chesbrough case turns on what kind of evidence the government can produce of his intent. If you just read the indictment and you just read the parts about Ken Chesbrough, it is not obvious to me that they have the the evidence to to prove criminal intent. On the other hand, as Anna pointed out to the, the attorneys, There are these other things that are not mentioned in the indictment, but are potentially admissible evidence, particularly the uh, December, I think, 8th memo that he wrote uh, that much more clearly bear on intent. So I I think this is going to be a fascinating case to watch, and it will, at one level, be a preview of the case that Fonnie Willis is going to be running against uh, the larger group, But another question it will really ask, and it'll be important to understand, is whether she has them all dead to rights or whether she was really anticipating that these cases all go together and some of them fall apart if you try them individually. And I don't know the answer to that question sitting here today. I do think if Chesborough's lawyers did not think they had a path forward with him as isolated a- and on his own as possible, they would not have played it the way they have. These seem like serious lawyers to me, and I think this is a really interesting trial strategy for them. Anna, what what am I leaving out?
2: Yeah, well, you're not leaving anything out. I, I just wanted to uh, say something that is a possibility that I think many people haven't realized and and maybe is is not going to happen but it's possible when judge McAfee ordered severance of Powell and Chesbro from the rest of the 17 defendants uh, he also noted that you know he was going as to those 17 defendants he uh, wanted to you know require them to file a waiver of their speedy trial rights um, so that it, it's not a kind of games gamesmanship situation where, you know, they get severed and then, uh, in order to affect severance for themselves, uh, can, you know, just then uh, file a a speedy trial demand and, and, and basically kind of, you know, game it out like that. Um, so he required them to, uh, file a waiver of their speedy trial rights, but he also said that, you know, if they don't file that waiver, uh, they they risk, uh, you know, automatically being put with the October 23rd trial of Sidney Powell and Ken Chesbro, And thus far, from what I last checked, there are about three people who have not yet filed those waivers. Um, I believe it was Eastman... Uh, Mike Roman and Misty Hampton, the Coffee County election supervisor, um, or or former Coffee County election supervisor. So we have a possibility that those folks, if they don't file a waiver, McAfee could say, okay, you're going to go ahead and be tried now on October 23rd. So just keep that in mind that it could end up being not just Chesbro and Powell, but um, maybe a few others as well. So that'll be interesting to to see.
0: Yeah, I... I have not obviously spoken to the, the prosecutor's office about this, but I suspect they would be very happy to have a few of those if they have to go to trial in, in, in two, three weeks to have a few more people at that trial so that they don't end up in, in a situation where they're trying effectively a whole lot of people in absentia and boring the hell out of the jury. Uh, Jim asks, this is a question, I suppose, for Roger. The Minnesota Secretary of State has said he thinks whether Section 3 of the 14th Amendment applies to Trump should be decided by the Minnesota Supreme Court, given that it seems like a decision by the court that Section 3 applies will modify the ballot in Minnesota because both the judiciary and the executive agree. Is the Minnesota case thus now likely to be the first to go before the US Supreme Court
4: well the Minnesota Supreme Court case i mean this th- that case begins in the Minnesota Supreme Court they've chosen a remedy that starts there so uh it certainly has the best chance of getting to the supreme the US Supreme Court i what the secretary of state said was a little more to me, was a little more nuanced and a little more confusing. Uh, we'll have to see how it plays out. He did say, you're right, that the procedure they're using is the correct one to get this uh, to follow in this situation. And then he took no position on the ultimate questions. But he also said, it is not true that I have the power To as Secretary of State, to decide the qualifications of people on the primary ballot. Uh, He said that is really up to the political parties in a primary. And that's a big problem, potentially, because the theory of the proceeding is that you are suing an official because he has made a mistake or is about to make a mistake and including a mistake about who he has let be on the ballot. And if the secretary of state is saying, I have no control of that, then, uh, one could say, well, then th- this isn't a situation where he has made a mistake or is about to make a mistake. And so, you know, I, I think the other side is going to say, well, that's a procedural bar. This is highly technical. And I, I have no idea, you know, Minnesota law, uh, but i think you're right if any case is going to get there this is the one and um and again you have a and a court that is uh on november 2nd when the oral argument is supposed to take place is going to be 6 to 1 democratic appointees not you know not that that determines anything but it, it, i think it, it, this this has the best chance the other one at the moment would be the colorado one but That's not going to get to the Colorado Supreme Court until probably after Thanksgiving. So uh, it's going to be a tight squeeze. And these primaries are, you're supposed to finalize the ballot by about January 5th. Yeah,
0: just uh, a good way to answer the question which uh, will be the first case to get to the U.S. Supreme Court is which is the first case Trump loses at the highest state court. Because there's no reason in the world for the Supreme Court to consider a Section 3 matter in the absence of a disqualification. And there's every reason in the world for the Supreme Court. They don't need to wait for a conflict between uh, once once any state Supreme Court says he shouldn't be on the ballot you have a re- you have a national uniformity question that the U.S Supreme Court needs to answer Julia you have the next question
4: okay uh, my question is for Roger um when is the next hearing scheduled in judge chutkins courtroom and what issues will be addressed at that time I I. I've uh, located the docket for that district online and did a quick and dirty search, and I didn't see anything in Judge Chutkins' court for US v. Trump from now through the end of Sep- of October. What did I miss? I I, I agree with you. Uh, I don't think that she has said anything until the March fourth trial. But I, I don't think that means there won't be anything. She has set a lot of due dates. And, you know, the motions need to be due that, on such and such a date and the replies and the responses and the replies. And then, you know, if it's a complicated issue, she would then call a hearing to have oral argument. And she will probably have status conferences as well. But I, I think you're right as far I don't think she's – She's set things. And there were supposed to be motions filed, I think, uh, October 11th. And today, Trump, there were, uh, Trump moved to put those off by two months. So there have really been a flurry of uh, uh, motions to put things off. And uh, this one, uh, which the judge wants um, uh, the government to respond to by Tuesday, October 3rd, They were really quite uh, honest about, uh, they said, you know, and we don't want to file all our motions in a burst. We want to do it on a rolling basis, you know, like do the first motion, you know, appeal that, then do the next one, appeal that, you know, they were, you know, commendable, honest, you know, candor. But they did not have a real, they, they did say what the three motions they were thinking about were. And, and of course, they said, well, there's huge uh, constitutional issues. Um, and they're going to make an executive immunity motion to dismiss based on executive immunity. Ben's been waiting for that one.
0: Yeah, they're taking their time.
4: Yeah. One that's based on failure to state a claim. Uh, I don't know about that one. And then uh, the third is uh, an allegation of uh, that uh, the special counsel uh, misconduct by the special counsel, uh, during the grand jury process and the charging, uh, the t- decision making process. You know, the, cer- certain of those, like the executive immunity, probably would require an oral argument, might, I don't know. But um, uh, no, I'm, I agree with you. I don't think there's anything set right now.
0: All right. So uh, we're going to get through the last four questions, which means we got to do them quickly. Let's do them as quickly as possible. Joyce asks, does the government expect the judge to travel to D.C. to review these docs? Answer, I think it probably does. Uh, that's what FISA court judges around the country do routinely. It may be that it's willing to make accommodations for a U.S. federal judge that it's not willing to make for uh, a, a criminal defendant. But uh, I think the likelihood is, yeah, they they do expect that. Joyce also asks, there's a motion in front of Judge Chutkin from Trump's counsel to delay the SEPA hearings for two months while they consider several motions. What is the likelihood that she will delay this motion since there is so little classified information here? Roger, my impression is that the answer to that is close to nil. Do you do you agree?
4: Well, first of all, I, I might have missed that, but uh, I mean, I, I there was certainly a motion to delay, uh, the next CEPA, the CIPA. I think it was the section Four proceeding in the DC case. Also. Uh, I didn't think they gave a specific month. Maybe they did. I I might've overlooked that, but I didn't see a specific date. Um, but judge Chutkin does want them to address that as well. And yes, you're right. There's very few, uh, documents classified documents in that case so uh, it seems highly unlikely but uh it's also a very opaque thing because we don't know because it's classified documents we don't really know much about what they're talking about I i don't at least
0: michael you get the penultimate question
4: Hi. Uh, thank you. Yes, going back to your Chesborough discussion, which really was
3: very interesting. The, their lawyer, if I understood, their lawyers insisted at length against you and Anna that the RICO statute
4: didn't apply because it was it had the the conspiracy would have to be open-ended and it would have to aim at financial gain. Neither of which they said applied in this case, and of course that argument has nothing to do with Mr. Chesbro being a lawyer. It's a principled argument about the law.
3: So it raised the question, if they actually win on that, everything else goes away? Does the rest of the trials just disappear? Yeah, if
0: they prevail on that point, uh, she loses the whole case.
3: Just the RICO charge.
0: Right, right. So The, the whole RICO charge goes right. away. Lots there are, of other charges. There are lots of other individual charges, but the the entire Rico case goes away. There are other bases on which he, Chesborough could win uh, that are not on matters of law and not on matters that extend beyond himself uh, that don't have that sweeping effect. But yeah, no, if they prevail on that motion, that's a big, big deal. Graham, you get the last question today.
3: Thanks. Um, I guess this may be my question every week, um, is at what point does the government get fed up and uh, file an interlocutory appeal of Judge Cannon, given that she spent all this time making the Garcia hearing decision, granted it only in part, and did so via a minute order that did not explain her reasoning? Yeah, you know, I wouldn't read too much into that in this particular case. I mean, Joyce probably knows better than I do. But, um, you know, this is just a decision whether to hold a hearing. The most relevant determination is her determination as to whether the defendants knowingly and voluntarily actually waive, uh, you know, any concerns or potential conflicts of interest of their attorney that they're fully informed of them. Um, that's a determination that's usually made as part of the Garcia hearing, as I understand it. So, um, you know, the government will probably push for some sort of written determination to that effect, on that they have the hearing. So, we'll have to see how the hearing goes and what the decision is after that. I don't think. Her reasoning process as to whether a hearing is warranted actually has any bearing um, on, uh, particularly now that it was granted, has a bearing on whether the defendants in question have, their, you know, right or not. Um, that's going to be much more product of the actual hearing. So we'll have to wait. Those concerns may be warranted, but they're further down the road in my mind.
0: To your meta question, though, which is when, when are they going to get fed up with Judge Cannon and go to the 11th Circuit, there's a very simple answer to that question they will go easily and breezily on SEPA matters because those are interlocutory appeals that are authorized by statute and are a normal part of the process. So for SEPA matters, they'll go when they disagree with her about anything. For everything else, they will wait and wait and wait until she does something that is, A, that they can't live with and they can't conduct a trial under and b they are they they know she is not just wrong but wildly wrong and then they will take her up on a mandamus and try and as part of that try to get the case reassigned but they're going to be super cautious about it cuz you don't want a mandamus a judge in the middle of a complicated criminal case with an ex president and then have the 11th circuit say something like the opinion that I think Scott probably drafted twelve times. Mendamus is an extraordinary measure, not used to uh to to reverse ordinary errors or ordinary, you know, it's a disfavored remedy. You don't want you don't want to court that opinion as a uh every appellate clerk clerk has had to write that. And you don't want to deal with that. And so when you take her up, you want her to get swatted back real hard and you want to get the case reassigned. So they're going to be really patient about that. We are going to leave it there. Roger Parloff from the ceiling fan room, Scott Anderson from the blurry Peloton room, Anna Bauer from the Garden of Read-In. Thank you for joining us today. We will be back next week. Talk to you later. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, our audio engineers. This episode were Anna Hickey of Lawfare and Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Hey folks, you need to do your part to support programs like this. If you like this program, you should be a material supporter of Lawfare so you can join the conversation and so you can support its production. Do it at lawfaremedia.org support and join us live next time. The Lawfare podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.